Once upon a time in Hollywood, a visionary filmmaker completed a tentpole superhero movie. The first cut was far too lengthy and too dark for the studio, Warner Brothers, who felt that it wouldn't sell enough Happy Meals. To this end, they ordered the filmmaker to cut the movie down, which he promptly did, removing a substantial amount of material. For years, the fans have been clamouring, whining, insulting people and stomping their feet to see the full cut of this classic movie. A movie they feel was balderized by the studio. A movie made by sainted individuals with a clear vision of who the characters are and the heroic ideal. The movie was, of course, Joel Schumacher's Batman Forever? Riddle me this, riddle me that. Who's afraid of the big black bat? In an uncertain world, in a chaotic time, justice wears a mask. obvious way to ascertain how a film differs from what was originally intended is to look at things like the novelization published by Warner Books and written by Peter David in Batman Forever's case and the script largely available online and any deleted scenes on the DVD or Blu-ray. 
The latter is becoming more and more rare as film studios lose interest in us being able to make a one-off payment to own a film in favour of the more lucrative monthly payment for a streaming service. Once you have these three items, though, a compare and contrast between them can take place. If, of course, all of these things are available. Again, film studios are losing interest in allowing us access to this alternate material, preferring to present the finished product as what was always intended. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the novel by Peter David, the script, originally by Lee and Janet Scott Batchelor, and any deleted scenes that have been reinserted into the film via fan edits or are available on the Blu-ray. However, in doing this, we're thrown a curveball instantly, as David includes three scenes at the beginning of the novel that don't appear to be in the original script or any deleted scenes. The first concerns young Bruce Wayne, both before and after the deaths of his parents, and his connection to the mysterious cave underneath his home. David introduces a subplot here, Bruce's fear of the leathery winged creatures that live beneath his ancestral manor. The second scene focuses on Edward Nigma as a schoolboy and is taunting from local bullies, all of whom Eddie teases right back in the only way he knows how. He makes them out to be fools using his intellect and his quick wit. It also establishes Eddie's connection to Bruce Wayne early on. He sees the report of the Wayne's death in the newspaper and spots how focused young Bruce seems to be. This will lead to Nigma's ultimate obsession with Bruce, a plot development David seems to liken to an ardent and then spurned fan. The third and final prologue sets up Batman's relationship with Harvey Dent, a young crusading DA. Dent and Batman don't exactly hit it off, but they do form an alliance. I suspect all three of these prologues are the invention of the writer, as they don't appear in any of the different scripts I could find. They do a good job of setting up a subplot that would ultimately be cut from the film, Bruce's mental state. It introduces Eddie's precocious nature and interest in Bruce from an early age. And it establishes Batman and Harvey's working relationship. Again, a connection between the adversaries that is mostly ignored in the finished film. Speaking of the finished film, there are significant differences between the novel, the script and the opening of the film as released. David complicates matters further by adding yet another scene. Dr Chase Meridian's introduction to the reader is rather different to that of the viewer. Upon her arrival in Gotham, she is the victim of a mugging, and her property is returned to her by a young daredevil acrobat named Dick Grayson. This, I felt, was a step too far. We've already established a connection between Batman and Two-Face, already extant from the comics, but still a connection. A connection between Edward Nigma and Bruce Wayne, unique to this film, and now there's a connection, however tangential, between the boy who would be Robin and a lead character. It was a bit much for me. Some events are just random, or should be. However, once the novel gets to the film, on page 36, it opens completely differently. In a scene cut from the film, there's a considerably darker pre-credit sequence, which sees Two-Face escape from Arkham Asylum. Bruce Wayne's encounter with Edward Nigma as he inspects his tech lab then takes place here, not after the opening set piece as seen in the movie. In the film, Jim Carrey is cast as the Riddler and is clearly channeling Frank Gorshin. It's tempting to ask if he wants any egg with his ham. Ed Begley Jr. seems to want extra ham, as the actor, playing the head of the electronics department, stickly spends the entire scene between Bruce and Nigma stood off to the side, gurning. Once you spot it, it's quite distracting. 
It's here Bruce sees the bat signal and after dismissing Nigma takes off after Two-Face. In the film, these scenes are switched around to open with an action set piece. To be fair, it's not an edit that makes a lot of difference. The audience would probably be happy to wait eight whole minutes to see Batman just as they're happy to see him right at the top. It's here we also see the radically different approach taken by Schumacher to Gotham City in comparison to his predecessor. Gotham is now a neon, brightly coloured metropolis rather than the brooding, gothic monotone of the Tim Burton movies. Scenes are bathed with colours, green for the Riddler, purple for Two-Face, etc. And it looks astonishingly like the 60s TV show with its pop art aesthetic and colourful camp. This leads to a strange performance from the incumbent Dark Knight, Val Kilmer, who can't decide if he's playing it straight, like Michael Keaton, or sending it up, like Adam West. Nowhere is this more apparent than in the I'll get drive through line in response to Alfred asking if he wants a snack. Batman isn't a quipster, he's not Spider-Man. It's a horribly out-of-character moment, and Kilmer can't seem to decide whether to play it straight or sarcastic. As such, the gag, such as it is, just kind of lies there. The Two-Face battle plays out pretty much as scripted in both the film and the book, despite a few minor alterations in editing. However, there are interesting snippets of dialogue missing in the film that are present in the novel and the script. Harvey alludes to Batman having killed a line that shakes the Batman and contributes to his psychological issues. This was a nice way of addressing that the Batman of the Tim Burton movies clearly killed people, something that obviously made Zack Snyder cream himself with joy, but the rest of us found quite distasteful. There's a subplot in this entire movie addressing Batman's philosophy on killing and putting it in context with the comics version versus the films. Sadly, it's the Burton films that people tend to refer to when they say Batman's killed before whenever arguing with anybody online. Arguing with anybody online is a zero-sum game and it's probably best avoided. The restructuring of the opening scene also creates a continuity glitch. The scene where Dr. Meridian tries the bat signal to call Bruce should have occurred after the circus scene, which hasn't yet happened. So the producers have Nicole Kidman, the actress playing Dr. Meridian, redub one of her lines. Look carefully when she says, last night at the bank, and you can see some excess lip flap. She should have said, last night at the circus. The continuity glitch doesn't quite cover up the error. Dr. Meridian didn't see Two-Face at the bank. This also shows the schizophrenic nature of the Batman Forever script. Appropriate, I guess, when dealing with Two-Face, even this more cartoony version. It wants to walk that line between being a psychological examination of the character while still selling plastic tat to kids. It also shows the delicate nature in handling superhero characters. Go too far one way and they become two-dimensional caricatures spouting camped-out cliches. Go too far the other way and they become ridiculous. The original writers, Lee and Janet Scott Batchelor, were following in the more gothic footsteps of Tim Burton, examining the characters but playing down the death and grimness. Whilst Warner Brothers seemingly wanted rewrite man Akiva Goldsman to write a pop-art colouring book. Both interpretations are valid, but when smashed together like this, they don't quite gel. Every now and again, the pop-art sensory overload will pause for a scene where Chase Meridian tries to psychoanalyse Bruce in the most obvious way possible. Her brutal takedown of Two-Face's psychology, it's all about the coin, is particularly inept. If that's the best she can do, one wonders where she bought a doctorate. 
Meridian is also massively unprofessional, allowing her fascination with Batman to cloud her judgement. Her relationship with Bruce could, again, have been a way in for her character, but she's simply a shallow pseudo-professional. Lip service in its depiction of a strong professional who is only allowed to be so because she's also beautiful. The novel addresses this. David tries to explain away Meridian's unprofessionalism in her thoughts, and whilst not outright contradicting the script, David does have Meridian's internal monologue mock a few of her own lines, internally asking herself, shh, did I actually just say that? He also has her figure out Bruce's secret in a way not dissimilar to Silver St. Cloud in the comics, which makes her seem a little bit smarter than in the film. It doesn't help that Kidman plays Meridian not as a professional psychologist here to do a job, but as a breathy sex goddess, like she's a late-night rock station DJ. Here's Dire Straits with Romeo and Juliet. Uh, that kind of thing. All of this is a shame, really, as having a proper, competent psychologist, like in The Sopranos, could have helped this film immeasurably. Imagine if the film had allowed Meridian to help Dick Grayson cope with his family's death. Imagine if it had managed to allow her to investigate the depths of Bruce Wayne's soul. Imagine if she'd been allowed to get under Harvey Dent or Edwin Digma's skin when they capture her later in the film. Imagine if the script had given her anything to do other than look good in a tight pencil skirt. It's symptomatic of the cartoon approach to the characters in this film, exemplified not only by Dr. Meridian, but also by Two-Face. And let's not get into how wasted Drew Barrymore and Debbie Mazar are. Although, being wasted may be how Barrymore got through filming. Who can say? Dick Grayson is likewise wasted, but some of that is down to the casting. The inclusion of Robin, not a bad idea in and of itself, is hampered by Chris O'Donnell, who is convincing no one that he's a teenager. It's the worst casting of an adult as a teen since Stockard Channing tried to convince everyone that Rizzo was only 18, or Charisma Carpenter tried to make everyone believe Cordelia was still a high school student. O'Donnell is clearly 25. Why the hell does he need a guardian? His connection with Two-Face is interesting, but not really explored. Grayson gets over his parents' deaths relatively quickly, with only some lip service paid to his grief, and instead the focus is on his quest for revenge. Again, not a bad idea, but this is a film with a psychologist in it as a main character who does no psychoanalysis. She never even seems to inquire after Dick, and she was there when his parents were killed. Simply put, Robin isn't necessary to the film, and it wouldn't miss him if he wasn't there. He's not fleshed out in the novel or the script either, leading me to assume his inclusion was a marketing decision rather than a creative one. And it is this dichotomy between art and commerce that tears Batman forever apart. The difference between what the script wants to be about and what the film wants to be about is apparent in its tone, which seems to have been set somewhat after the fact by the casting of Jim Curry as the Riddler. Curry, who is so far over the top that he's down the other side, upsets the balance of the film, stealing scene after scene with his mugging, hammy acting and generally irritating presence. Tommy Lee Jones, an actor who could, with better material, have really brought Two-Face's dichotomy and tragedy to the screen, seems to feel he has to compete with Curry, making Two-Face a massively tortured and interesting villain in the comics and animated series, a cartoon caricature. 
Both men have a relationship with Batman and Bruce Wayne that could have been exploited had they chose to focus on the more psychological aspects of the script and had Nicole Kidman been allowed to play a character rather than a sex object. Fortunately, Tommy Lee Jones would have his comic book adaptation credibility reinstated after his suitably salty turn in Captain America, the first Avenger. The big casting surprise in this film was noticing that John Favreau's in it. Very, very, very minimally, but he's there. And it would take a Marvel movie to re-establish his comic book cred as well. The Riddler is a little bit smarter in the novel and script, and Bruce's detective reasoning with regards to the riddles is better handled. But Curry's look at me narcissism strips away any pathos the character may have had. The script suffers from the same problems as the James Bond film The World Is Not Enough. It can't decide if it's a psychological study of a pop culture icon or a straight-up summer blockbuster. It's not a marriage that works. It's in the script and the novel, though, we learn that originally all the psychological underpinnings with Bruce were leading somewhere, and this is where the majority of the edited material seems to come from. Throughout the film, Bruce is having nightmares, nightmares that are allowing the memories of his parents' death to take a hold of him and reveal new information he has previously submerged deep within his psyche. This is why he goes to see Dr. Meridian. His repression and tackling of his memories and his rededication to his mission after the realisation that killing is not the way was one of the more interesting parts of the novel. It acknowledges the parts of the previous two movies that some viewers had issues with, whilst making Bruce seem less of a hypocrite when telling Dick that killing Two-Face won't accomplish anything. That felt a bit rich from a Batman that not only killed indiscriminately throughout the Tim Burton movies, but smiled as he did it. It also gives the title more meaning. This is a Bruce who wholeheartedly embraces his mission, not for vengeance or revenge, but because to not do it is a waste of material. If he quits being Batman, he becomes what he hates, a simpering rich boy who just throws money at the problem without actually tackling anything. Plus, being Batman keeps him sane. It doesn't make him insane. Obviously, an adult and sophisticated take on the character would include him killing indiscriminately, but the writers clearly want to get back to the Batman as an aspirational hero, not a Punisher clone. At the end of the novel and the original script, he really is Batman forever, having laid many of his demons to rest. This is a good story arc for this film, as it sets up a Batman for Batman and Robin who isn't as tortured or angsty. These four films really do have an arc of sorts, just maybe the execution of that arc lacks in places. And that's the problem. Batman Forever isn't a bad film, it's just not a very good film. The Batman movies of the 80s and 90s are of a kind to the Superman movies of the 70s and 80s. The first one, despite flaws, is a classic of the genre, and proof positive that a good score is a massive part of a film's success. The second one is a flawed but fun sequel. The third one is kind of just there, a bit meh but not bad, and the fourth one sucks. I mean, this is a simplistic view, not one I totally agree with, but it tracks. Even with the additional scenes put back in, I don't think it would make much difference to Batman Forever's overall reputation. And this supports my general feeling about director's cuts. They really make a film better, rather than just tend to make it longer. If it was a good film to begin with, then it's still a good film, just more bloated. See Aliens, Terminator 2, etc. Neither of those two films is improved by the director's cut. It's just nice to see those extra scenes. If it was an okay film, the additional footage may make the film a little clearer, but it's still only an okay film. See The Abyss or Batman vs Superman. 
the Abyss is slightly improved by the extended cut because it makes the ending make more sense. And Batman versus Superman, the character motivations are likewise more sensible and logical. But if you didn't like that film in its shorter version, the longer version isn't going to make you like it anymore. If the film was a piece of shit, an extended cut tends to just make it a longer piece of shit. Granted, this wouldn't be a director's cut, as Joel Schumacher is sadly no longer with us, but based upon the novel, I don't see any alterations turning this into a misunderstood classic. The camp tone of Batman Forever also works against it. As the 1966 Batman film showed, tongue-in-cheek piss-takery works for a 30-minute TV episode, but sustaining that over two hours is worrying. One's tolerance for Batman Forever ultimately lies in one's tolerance for Jim Curry. If you find Jim Curry funny and entertaining, you'll probably find Batman Forever funny and entertaining. If you find him about as funny as a ball sack wax, then the film, like Curry, is obnoxious, overbearing and overlong, even in its cut-down form. When they called this Batman Forever, I'm assuming that the producers didn't mean to make a film that felt like it went on forever. At the end of both the theatrical release and the novel, there are still loose ends. Why the hell did they give Dick Grayson a brother and then never even mention him? Why doesn't Bruce just tie Nygma up in legal reg tape and lawsuits, given that Nygma openly admits he developed his brain drain equipment on Wayne time? How does Nygma know Bruce has a cave under his house? Why does Commissioner Gordon sleep at the office? Why does Val Kilmer seem like he's asleep? Granted, some of these are problems beyond the range of the script or novel, but they all seem to be simple things to fix if you're concerned with making anything with more merit than a toy commercial. All that being said, an extended cut of this movie doesn't seem like an impossibility now. We just need to bully and harass people on social media, create a natty hashtag, and who knows, maybe one day Batman truly will be forever. Release the Schumacher Cut. Need a podcast talking about weird stuff? Well, then we've got just the thing for you. Into the Weird, a podcast chronicling the madness and magnificence of the mighty Marvel Bronze Age of comics, featuring the voice talents of Mr. Billy Delicious. Hola. Mr. Herman Hellstrom Lowe. Hey there. And straight from the long box of darkness, his infernal majesty Dormammu. How are you? And many more. But wait a minute. You might be thinking, aren't all comics infused with a grain of weirdness? I mean, Reed Richards can stretch every single part of his body, right? And why did Ultron design the vision with working genitalia? Well, you would be correct. But Into the Weird isn't just any regular comic book show, folks. We focus on the really bizarre. Here are a few examples. A sword and sorcery barbarian grown spontaneously from a jar of peanut butter. A duck running for president of the United States. Benjamin Franklin playing hide the sausage with Doctor Strange's girlfriend, Clea. A giant-sized man-thing lamenting the death of a clown. A serial killer obsessed with killing only fools, dressed as cavalier with laser guns after witnessing a priest fornicating. And so much more. So if you like the wonderful weirdness of the Bronze Age from 1970 to 1985, and characters such as Ghost Rider, Morbius, The Defenders, Man-Thing, Son of Satan, Skull the Slayer, Kill Raven, Howard the Duck, and the weird granddaddy of them all, Dr. Stephen Strange, then this is the show for you. 
ITWs on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, and TuneIn. Hit subscribe and join us for a comic-filled jaunt into the weird. Anyway, should we look at the emails? Look at the email section. Oh, we have quite a few. Well, we have three. That's quite a few, isn't it? Brian emailed back. Andy, Brian, I'm thrilled with the attention you gave my prior email. Thank you for that. Well, it was a good email, Brian. Let me answer the question you posed about spoilers. I do not mind spoilers that much, and I'm not that good a listener because I'm doing other things whilst listening. They're not always mindless activities, so I forget a lot quickly. Here's what I retained. Chuck portrays nerds in a positive way, unlike the big band theory. Scott Bakula and Linda Hamilton appear in the show. Yvonne Strahovski is preternaturally beautiful. Yes, she is. Anyone listening to a podcast specifically about a television show or film has to realise that there is going to be spoilers and have to decide for themselves if they want to continue to listen. My rule of thumb is that I avoid listening if it's a film or show that I imminently intend to watch. Otherwise, I enjoy the podcast reviewer's banter, which usually strays to other topics. To your credit, you stay focused, which may be due to your show being solo. Listen to the profits being another matter entirely. Yes, that's that's very true. Uh, well, thank you, Brian. I'm glad you enjoyed the show. Your email, your was a good email. If it's a good email, it gets time on the show. I like all emails, actually. I like people take time to correspond because we don't really do a lot of email. Everything's now social media, isn't it? My next email is from Patrick Zellner. My problem with Stargirl. Dear Mr. Leyland, I overall like the idea of Stargirl. My main problem starts in the second episode. I understand why Jack Knight could not be included in the show, but the lack of any Knight legacy is a major letdown. That brings up my major problem throughout the series. Most GSA legacies were thrown away to untrained teenagers just because. It is most embodied in the second episode where she chopped up her dead dad's costume to make a crop top. Um, well, that goes, Peter, into my discussion in that show that I had no affinity for the Justice Society. I had never read the Stars and Stripes comic book, so therefore didn't know any of that. Now, my take on it, personally, is if you are a big fan of the JSA, you will probably get a big kick out of this show. A lot of that stuff, I freely admit, will have just sailed right over my head because I am not a big fan of the JSA. I'm aware of them, and I know they all are, so I probably got a couple of the Easter eggs that were planted in there, but I would imagine if you're a big fan of the JSA, um, then you'll catch a lot more. But the other thing about it as well, it's not a JSA show. It's a show about Stargirl. And it is a show about legacy. Every single character in that show is a legacy character. Um, I mean, if it didn't work for you, it didn't work for you. It's as simple as that. You know, a lot of the CW shows don't work for me. Stargirl did. For whatever reason, I really enjoyed Stargirl. And somebody else who really enjoyed Stargirl was Chris Franklin of Batman Nightcast. Hey Andy, great episode on Stargirl. I'm glad you enjoyed it because the Franklin family really enjoyed it too. Watching the show together was one of the bright spots during this strange and stressful spring and summer. I would like to mention something I picked up on. I think it's in the show, and I'm not just making it up. The character of Cindy, who later becomes the villain Shiv, actually clones Henry's phone and sends the damaging sexting photo of Yolanda to everyone. We later learn she did this, not just because she's an awful person, but as part of her campaign to get in a relationship with Henry so the Injustice Society could keep closer tabs on him. So while Henry should have tried to make things right with Yolanda, he's only partially to blame for the fate that befell her. Yeah, that I got that from the show, but I never got that Henry actually told Yolanda that. I don't recall there being... I mean, maybe I missed it. It's entirely possible. But um, 
I don't recall there being a scene where Henry and Yolanda actually had a conversation about it where Henry said, it wasn't me. I didn't do it. He didn't seem to even ever apologise to her for it happening. And so if it was entirely Cindy's doing, then surely Henry would have been as outraged about it as Yolanda was, because it is just as big an invasion of his privacy as it is hers. But he never seemed to do that, and he didn't seem bothered that it had happened to her. So I, uh, I don't know that he's only partially to blame. I think he's just as to blame as Cindy is. Yes, Cindy did the actual act, but he never seemed to apologise or make it better. He never seemed to confront the problem that Yolanda had either with Yolanda or with the other people in high school and denounce them and denounce whoever it was that did it. He never did that. So I think he's just as to blame. Either way, looking forward to more Stargirl and cause more palace. Glad you enjoyed your time off. We took a week off in a cabin near one of the state parks here and loved it. It's always nice. To, we, we didn't actually get to go away, which, you know, lockdown and all that bollocks. But uh, it was nice to just go and take the dog around various different castles and have him defend our honour, such as it is at the moment. Anyway, hey kids comics at virginmedia.com is currently the email address. That may change. Uh, drop me a line if you have anything to say about this. Tell me why I'm wrong about Batman Forever. And uh, next time, hopefully, it's going to be all about the professionals, which a lot of you will never have heard of, which makes it all the more fun for me. See you next time. Everything is going to be all right. I really do believe that. Honest. See you all next time. Bye-bye.